Jeffrey D. Sachs is a university professor and the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. He is also the director of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network and has been the advisor to three UN Secretaries General. He is a New York Times bestselling author and his books include The Age of Sustainable Development, Building the New American Economy, and A New Foreign Policy, Beyond American Exceptionalism. He hosts the Book Club with Jeffrey Sachs podcast, featuring renowned authors of scintillating, inspiring, and remarkably important books about history, social justice, and the challenges of building a decent world. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. Many of us are asking ourselves how we can do the most with the skills that we have to try to make the world a better place. And for decades, you've been a leading light of how to live a committed life, not just vocalizing the problems, but really working towards solutions, accomplishing the sustainable development goals, working towards the Paris Climate Agreement. As president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, what started you on your mission and what was the inspiration behind the network and center? Well, thank you very much for a nice question. I, I started out uh, in my life with the, the idea of uh, that we, we ought to try to do something good, something useful, so nothing very complicated. I, I think I got uh, good good steering and good advice from my parents and my community. So. Uh, really nothing very remarkable. I've been uh, trying to use economics for uh, the 50 years that I've been studying this uh, discipline to uh, contribute uh, to making the world a little bit better. And uh, there are so many obvious problems. Uh, I'm attracted to the problems. Uh, what are we going to do about poverty? Why do we have poverty in a world of wealth? Why, in an age of great technological capacity, are we wrecking the planet? These are pretty basic issues. So I've been puzzling about them. I've been studying them. I've been trying to do something about them uh, for pretty much my whole adult life. There's so many sustainable development goals. So how do you prioritize it? How do you get people more involved into making those goals realizable? I was very lucky 21 years ago that Kofi Annan, who was then the secretary general of the UN, asked me to be his advisor and to advise him specifically on what were called the Millennium Development Goals. These were the objectives that the UN nations adopted in September 2000 to fight poverty and to improve health and education. I really liked the idea that the world's governments had agreed on goals. I didn't choose those goals. They seemed absolutely good and sensible to me. And poverty, uh, improve public health, get kids in school, protect the environment. And the sustainable development goals are the successor goals to the millennium development goals. The SDGs were adopted in 2015 in uh, a special session of the UN General Assembly. I like the goals not only because of what they stand for, but because the whole world agreed on them. I like the idea that the world has agreed on something that we don't agree on very much. Governments bicker with each other. They 
posture, they go to war, but they don't agree very often. So when we have a global agreement, it's really worth trying to do something about it. It's not easy because once the governments agree, then they go about their normal business uh, of uh, fighting with each other, uh, conflict, being distracted. Of course, the pandemic uh, has uh, changed all of our lives and taken the attention away from many long-term issues and made a lot uh, of things even more difficult on the planet. But we should continue to fight for not only basic decency, but basic decency that the world has committed to because there's added value when we don't have to say you should agree to something. You already have agreed to it. You've agreed to end poverty. You've agreed to get all kids in school. You've agreed that everyone should have universal health care coverage. You've agreed that we should be protecting nature, that we should be protecting the oceans. When I say you, I'm speaking to the governments of the world. You've agreed. I was in the room when they agreed in September 25th, 2015. I want to hold them to that agreement. And that's the basis of the work. So I don't really prioritize very much among the 17 goals because they're all interconnected. If I had to choose one, though, uh, it is SDG number four. People can look online at the 17 SDGs. You don't have to memorize them all uh, like I have <laughs> because of what I do every day. But uh, SDG four is that all kids should be in school, that everybody should get an education. If we're just badly educated, we're not going to make it on this planet. Uh, and if only some of the kids are educated, the others are going to lose and we're going to have divided societies in which everybody suffers. So if I had to put my finger on one goal above all else, it is let's empower young people so that they know the future. They know the world that they're going to be leading soon. They can do something about it. Well, here, here, you know, we're an educational initiative. How can we put climate education and political civic education at the core of our educational model so that people, even from a young age, that people don't feel powerless? Because as we know, there's great momentum and grassroots and we're all stakeholders, but so many people feel it's in the hands of some lobbyists and corporations. Well, it's actually part of SDG 4, in fact, specifically target 4.7 which says that everybody should learn about sustainable development. Everybody should learn about global citizenship. Everybody should learn tolerance for other people's cultures. So it's, it's even built in there. Uh, we don't have to invent our own goals. We just have to remind governments that this is what they have agreed to do. And I know lots of ministers of education lots of commissioners of education in cities that say, absolutely, help us to do it. So I'm helping to spearhead an initiative for the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, working together with UNESCO, the UN Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, with the Ban Ki-moon Center, with Ban Ki-moon, our former UN Secretary General, who presided over the adoption of the SDGs, and with Pope Francis and the Vatican on an initiative for Target 4.7, that everybody should learn sustainable development. 
we're working on building a curriculum for all levels from pre-K up through PhD programs. But no matter what level you're at, if you're in a primary school, a lower secondary, upper secondary, university, you should be learning what is climate change, what is biodiversity, what can we do about it. And this kind of learning is not only book learning, but it's also experiential learning. Because I'd like students in every city in the country, in every village, to work on how their own city can be sustainable, their own village, and go meet with the mayor, go meet with the city council, and say, what are we doing here about getting to zero carbon energy? What are we doing to shift to renewable energy? And if the mayor says, well, what could we do? First of all, the students are in a good position to tell the mayor, here's what you could do. Here's our report, seventh grade, eighth grade, 10th grade. Absolutely. They'll know better than most of the politicians after they've studied the problem. Second, if the city government says, well, that's great, but we don't really have the power. That's with our state government. Then the students can take a field trip to the state capitol and say, we are citizens in this state. Our parents are voters. We're going to be voters soon. This is what we've studied. This is what should be done. Because the truth of the matter is so many adults are completely irresponsible or they went through uh, school without learning these things. And so the young people will know better. And that is really the generational change that we need also uh, in the United States. I'm sorry to see that most of our political leadership is often well above the age of 70, often sometimes above the age of 80, for a world of young people where the future is in the balance right now. And we need young people who are well-trained, who are well-educated, ready to take on leadership so that we can actually solve 21st century problems and not use 20th century mindsets. You talked about the, the Vatican. There's really a moral dimension with this, which is not always addressed. And I feel it's unfortunate. And you've addressed this in many articles, and I want to mention your podcast as well, because that's another educational engagement. But that we prioritize winning, winning of elections or the appearance of global dominance over what really should be, I feel, and I think you feel welfare over winning. What is the purpose? What is even the meaning of uh, morals or ethics? It's that we have a decent society. It's nothing so highfalutin, so fancy. Uh, it's not something for books and philosophers. It's for a good life for the people in this world. And what does it take to achieve it? And so this is why, of course, this is a moral question, because morals is nothing more than living a proper life, being responsible citizens, being responsible businesses, behaving properly. Pope Francis, of course, gets it. He's a, one of our greatest moral figures of our time. He's completely inspiring. And his encyclical, Laudato Si, is about the ethics of sustainability, about the ethics of sustainable development. It's a wonderful message. Uh, and it, as Pope Francis says, it's for the whole world, uh, not only for Catholics, but for everybody. 
and it really is for that. It, it uh, speaks to everyone on this planet. Well, rich and powerful people often think morals are for fools. Morals are for losers. Uh, they can do what they want, but I'm going to win. That is the mindset of that miserable man that we had as president before in the United States, uh, that there are killers and there are losers. Well, that kind of attitude is, uh, it's disgusting, it's dangerous, it could get us all killed, unfortunately, um, and it's what we need to resist. So we need to have a, an understanding of our responsibilities. That comes with understanding the basics of the science also. You can't really understand what are our responsibilities to the planet unless you also understand how we're wrecking the planet. And that requires scientific insight, scientific knowledge, education. But the ethics then says, okay, now I know what's going on. I have to do something about it, whichever way I can. I, as a citizen in my town, uh, as uh, somebody speaking up at a school board meeting or a city council meeting or running for office or uh, talking to politicians uh, or the way I run my business or the way I teach in school, I need to do something about it. So having said this, how can we as individuals grapple with the tension between the systemic causes of climate change, such as the 100 companies that cause 70% of global emissions, and everyday individual actions that we are told contribute to climate change. I think a good starting point, Evelyn, is to uh, first understand what is a path to safety. In other words, what should we be doing as global citizens to get to climate safety? The basic message, scientific message, is that the world, that means all the businesses, that means the power generation, the electricity, the uh, whole way we drive, the way we heat our buildings, the way industry works, we need to change the energy system from one that's based on coal, oil, and gas to one that is based overwhelmingly on zero carbon renewable energy, like wind power and solar power. So that's the first thing. And then you ask, can it be done? And that is a question that can be studied systematically. And the uh, International Energy Agency, for example, IEA, wrote a report called Net Zero by 2050, which showed how it can be done. Then we can ask, well, how do I fit into that? Uh, I'm, I'm a citizen, so I vote for politicians. That's one way that I fit into this. I, I um, often have a choice. Uh, even on my own electricity bill, do I want to buy zero carbon? Do I want to buy solar uh, or fossil fuel? In many places in the U.S., you actually can say, I want clean energy. Uh, and uh, this is a, another matter. Uh, we should be working in our schools, on our campuses, uh, in our businesses to say, okay, how do we fit into that path to 2050. We need to uh, change how uh, we're using electricity. Uh, probably we're all going to be and should be driving electric vehicles uh, sooner rather than later. That's going to be another step. Of course, we also have to use our voice to 
our politicians who are uh, looking uh, for votes to tell them, we're not voting for you unless you start taking care of us as citizens. We are endangered. Forest fires, freak tornadoes, superstorms, floods, rising sea levels, droughts, heat waves. Stop it already, you guys. And it's mostly guys, unfortunately, uh, in, in Washington. They're really, really irresponsible. And by the way, they're cheats. Because uh, if you go online to opensecrets.org, you can find out how many of them are on the take of the oil companies or on the take of the coal companies. And so there's a lot of dirty business going on with this dirty energy. And that's something that we should know as well. So yes, we can be responsible in our own behavior. We can be responsible in our own communities, whether it's on campus, in our classrooms, in business sector, we can be responsible as citizens in our politics. We have to do all of those things. Uh, and it's, it's not easy to make this transformation. It starts with the understanding, the understanding of the problem, and then asking the question, I want to contribute. How should I contribute? Just the question you asked. And then think about all the different ways that one participates in society, uh, because that's a lot of ways. Uh, and it can be educating your friends also, your parents, your children. Uh, so that everybody is gaining a responsibility and is sharing in the effort. Another thing that you have been critical of is the fear in America against, you know, other countries of fear of losing world dominance in, in some ways. It just seems like there's always this looming war. And I really, it makes me sad because America is such a wealthy country and so much is spent on military. There's such a great opportunity, organizational capacity there, if some of that could be used towards green training and green jobs to use the intelligence and to use the skill set that's there. There's some strange idea in some part of uh, this country, not most of us, but some part that America has to dominate the world. America has to be the most powerful. We're not safe unless we're more powerful than the others. Well, think of a world in which everyone is worrying in that way. That's a world of arms races, of wars, of conflict. It doesn't make anybody safe. And yet that is a mindset for a lot of people. We see it all the time. And I see every day how we demonize others that we don't know very well. Oh, every word that's said about China or about Russia or about others, it's not based on facts. It's based on whatever sense of vulnerability it is or ignorance or desire to dominate or to prove that you're the best. But it's not based on discussion. It's not based on negotiation. It's not based on our government saying to another government, hey, we're both facing climate change. What should we do together about this? And so we waste so much time and we threaten, in fact, the whole world with fighting. We're at it again. Uh, possible wars in so many parts of the world because we're not even trying to find the areas of cooperation. I know that, by the way, because I'm, I'm in the room uh, where uh, these discussions are taking place and they're not trying very hard.
Yeah, it's about destruction, not creation. And I also feel it's a huge burden on America as well to be the world's policeman. It's like, it would be so much better to invest in one's own country and diversify the wealth or, you know, spread it out. I think if, <laughs> I think Americans have no, well, I don't know, maybe they do have an idea and it's just depressing how much we wasted on wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, how much we waste having 800 military bases around the world in 80 countries. Are we crazy? What are we doing? What are we thinking? Why do we have a Pentagon budget of roughly $800 billion a year right now and then say, oh, we can't afford childcare. Oh my God, we can't afford uh, you know, basic uh, child tax credit for poor children. Because, yeah, we spent it all on the military or we gave tax cuts to the richest Americans. But the game is rigged in this country by super rich donors, by the military industrial complex, by Wall Street. I'm sorry to say it. The game is rigged politically because the congressmen are just asking, who's going to pay for my campaign? And then it turns out the lobbyists raise their hand, say, we will, and you will vote our way. You'll vote for war. You'll vote for military equipment. You'll vote for uh, new gifts for Wall Street, whatever it is. This is why things are so strange, actually, because uh, we like to think of ourselves as a democracy and we'd like it to be a democracy. But then you have... Uh, the people in Congress representing lobbyists. Uh, what is this Senator Sinema of Arizona? She's, she runs off with the lobbyists. She says, absolutely. I'll make sure there are no higher taxes on corporations or rich people. You know, it, it's just so gross. And it's done in public view. That's because our political system got broken by money and politics. On the other hand, there's so many inspiring individuals, such as yourself, I mean, real philanthropists in America. And those human stories are something that you highlight important issues in your podcast, which is the book club with Jeffrey Sachs. Can you tell us about the creation of that? Because that gives a hopeful message and it helps us understand these issues in a very human way. Well, that, that I hope people would listen to that. I'm having a great time because during the pandemic, I think a lot of us found actually more time to read books or listen to audiobooks as we're walking <laughs> to try to get out of our flats. Uh, and uh, I kept uh, coming across new wonderful books and said, mm, I really want to talk to that author. So I started a podcast so I could talk to the authors. And I've been having an absolutely fantastic time meeting, especially historians who help to illuminate how we got to where we are right now. And so I've been speaking with fantastic historians explaining America's own past and the divisions. And of course, a lot of the racial issues, uh, uh, the history of the civil war, uh, the history of uh, the cultural differences in our country, but also I sneak in some of the scientists with some new science and economists uh, now and then uh, with some wonderful new insights uh, on the history of economic policy. I'm having a great time with it.
It, well, it really is an education and it just helps these things that they're intimidating, particularly the economy. This is something that is very mysterious for us. I had a conversation with uh, Richard Wolf and he was talking about the tide is turning. A lot of people feel capitalism is failing them and are not not quite happy about it. These are kind of Republicans too. I think you, you like the social democratic models of Northern Europe. Do you think America could move towards that? We all need to move to a new kind of economy, not to end uh, everything we have right now by uh, any means, but we need to move to an economy, which I would call uh, a sustainable development economy, which has three parts to it. One, we want to be prosperous. Second, we want to be fair. And third, we want to be sustainable. So we should have three explicit goals. We do want a good income and a good life. We do want all of society to be able to share in that. I don't want poor kids in this country not being able to get a decent education or growing up in such poverty that they're physically ill and uh, without proper nutrition. Can you imagine? But that's a reality in the United States. And I certainly don't want an economy which destroys nature and destroys what we live on, what we depend on uh, in terms of climate and growing food and safety from storms and so forth. So the idea of sustainable development is a new kind of economy. It has a lot of features, like you say, with the social democracies of Northern Europe, which already for a hundred years have taken a special effort to be fair and to be inclusive. And it's quite different. Today, I was reading about another right-wing billionaire in the United States who's putting huge amounts of money uh, into right-wing so-called libertarian candidates who say, we shouldn't have the government do anything to help poor people. Yeah, okay, easy for a billionaire to say, <laughs> but what about the rest of society? But that's a kind of vulgarity that we need to fight against. And the social democracies figured that out a hundred years ago. Do not turn your government over to billionaires. In the United States, we turned our government over to billionaires. It's, it's disgusting. It's shocking uh, because they've got enough, frankly. It's the rest of society that needs some help, not listening to billionaires who, you know, it's just, they're not the people that should be running this country. So yes, a new kind of politics and when you look at the pieces of it, ah, it's achievable. We can be prosperous and sustainable and fair without ruining anything, actually just improving our lives, making uh, this country a better and happier place to be. Yes, and uh, not spending so much on the military, spending it internally, and we will feel safer and we'll have more prosperity. So as you think about education, the future, the challenges we face, of the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what were some life lessons that were important to you? What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I want you to get involved because uh, it's your future. It's your time. You understand the digital world better than uh, all of us as uh, parents and grandparents. You know the world that you are going to be steering and leading. So please work hard at understanding the issues because that's really important. 
Uh, it's not a matter just of hunch or guesswork. Oh, I know, or, oh, that's boring. I don't want to learn about climate change. I don't want to learn about biodiversity. I don't want to learn about other countries. That's not the right attitude. This requires constant, endless thinking, study, making friends with people in other countries, comparing, understanding. This is really important. But then with the understanding, get experience, get involved, work on problem solving, whatever you're doing, whether you're in business or whether you are an activist or as a student, get involved, work on solving particular problems, gain experience in doing that, keep open-minded, but uh, understand it's our opportunity. It's our need to help make a better world. And I put a lot of hope and we have to put a lot of hope in, in today's young people. Uh, their eyes are open. They know that there's a lot of important things to do, but I see them absolutely intent on doing it. Oh, yes. They're very committed. We are very inspired by them and by you. So thank you, Jeffrey Sachs, for helping us understand our structural crises, create solutions, and move in a positive direction towards a more sustainable and just society. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. So great to be with you. Thanks so much. My name is Evelyn Mall, and I'm an associate environmental podcaster at the One Planet Podcast. I'm a junior at Barnard College, and I'm majoring in environment and sustainability. Professor Sachs brought up some thought-provoking points during the course of the interview. One of the things he particularly stressed was the importance of education in the advancement of climate action and environmental stewardship, particularly from an earlier age. He mentioned SDG Target 4.7, which specifically refers to global citizenship education and education for sustainable development. This resonated with me particularly because my passion for sustainability and my own environmental stewardship started in my elementary education. That was all because I had a teacher that cared enough about the state of the environment to teach her students about it, even though it was not in the curriculum. We often talk about the narrative of people not caring about the environment, which, as Professor Sachs talked about, definitely has a moral dimension to it. But how much of this lack of care stems from an educational gap? That is why SDG 4 and specifically Target 4.7 are essential for the future of our planet. We are now seeing a reimagining of our curricula as they adapt to changing times, such as with the proposed inclusion of critical race theory, but there's a lot of pushback on these. Where governments lack, there are grassroots initiatives, such as an organization called Sprout Up, to help fill these gaps. Sprout Up sends undergraduates into public elementary classrooms to teach children about the environment, which they may not otherwise learn in school. Education does and will empower people of all ages to advocate for the planet and take those steps that Professor Sachs talked about, like talking to the mayor of your own town or choosing clean energy for your home. But I often wonder how concerned, educated citizens can grapple with the huge role that larger entities such as governments and corporations are playing in the path towards an unlivable planet. As someone who studies climate change and sustainability, I often tell my friends that this field is sometimes like staring into the abyss. 
I and many others fluctuate between hope and helplessness every day. We can protest and learn and talk to city officials, of course, but some things are out of our hands. I was happy to hear someone as renowned and with as much influence as Professor Sachs highlight the realities of other forces at play. The realities of lobbyists and politicians who simply want money and fame. The grip that the military-industrial complex has on the U.S. and its national budget. Things that go so far beyond the narrative that we are fed as individuals, such as your plastic straw is killing the planet, or for a more specific example, citizens of New York City being told to turn off their air conditioners during a heat wave to save energy while Times Square's numerous billboards stay on all day and night. But again, how do we grapple with these concepts? In the conversations I have about climate change, I always try to include hope especially in the form of having faith in people close to decision makers, such as Professor Sachs. One of the ways we can feel better about these realities that are so far out of our hands is knowing that there are people like Professor Sachs advocating for citizens and speaking out against systems of injustices. Another driving force for me in my understanding of how to approach climate change as a citizen is community. Eco and climate anxiety, as well as general worry about the state of our planet, permeate into so many people's lives. Finding community with people who are as concerned as you can help generate ideas, and not to mention, make you feel less alone in front of a giant, looming issue. Further, there is strength in numbers. Politicians and people in power are more likely to listen to big groups of people rather than an individual. I also wanted to bring up the role that Professor Sachs plays in the UN and the role of the UN. The UN is one of the few platforms where countries can convene to discuss global issues such as climate change at the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. There is no legitimate retaliation for not following through on the Paris Climate Agreement, and people argue that even if the goals were to be followed through, it might not be enough to keep the planet under 1.5 degrees. However, these agreements generate public interest and attention towards environmental issues. They also allow citizens to hold their governments accountable, as Professor Sachs says we should do. They also facilitate conversations on an intergovernmental level of the roles that different countries in different economic situations play in mitigation strategies. In this interview, Professor Sachs spoke of how governments should come together to address climate change, a truly global issue. International collaboration and community is needed to save our planet. As Professor Sachs outlined, there are various layers of approaches to the issue of climate change and sustainable development. There is work to be done at every scale to save the planet that we all share. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Moll, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Evelyn Moll. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Brass. The theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, 
just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.